Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. On the corner of Cannon Street and Friday Street, just opposite St Paul's Cathedral, you'll find a building with dark mud-red bricks and soft pink stone walls, a nod to the colour of the freshly printed newspapers inside. This is, of course, Bracken House, the home of the Financial Times. On the side of the building is the famous astronomical clock, where Winston Churchill's solemn face is surrounded by golden rays and the signs of the zodiac. It's been dubbed London's strangest clock, and its presence feels appropriate, since, as journalists, we're always thinking about those impending deadlines. But enough about the building. Let me take you inside. Welcome to Money Clinic. I'm Claire Barrett, the FT's consumer editor. For today's podcast, we're doing something a little bit different. We're taking you, the listener, inside the FT. I'm going to be talking to some of the FT's finest about the financial topics that they really feel passionately about and why they're throwing their weight behind the Financial Literacy and Inclusion Campaign, Flick for short, a new charity supported by the FT that aims to get everyone talking about money. This is an important part about growing up becoming an adult, you have to plan for retirement, you plan for your children's education, and these are important conversations to have as a result. Money is the one thing, just mention money, and you've got everyone eating out of your hand. But particularly the sort of students that I teach just completely and utterly love it. So it should make teaching these lessons very, very easy. Plus, I'll let you in on a secret. Even FT journalists make financial mistakes. And I think I can get one or two of them to spill the beans in this episode. But before we get to that, let's see who I can spot in the office. Hello, Matt Garahan. Hello. You are the spider at the centre of the FT's news web. Yeah. Tell us about what you do here. Well, here we are in the newsroom. This is the news desk. And as you can see, we have a spattering of people around. We have lots of TVs with different news channels on to keep us abreast of what's happening. We've got lots of bits going on. There's a corporate collapse to write about. There's a horrendous tragedy in the channel which we're covering and which is on the front page today. And we'll be doing more on that tonight. Any juicy scoops? News editors like Matt Garahan there tend to get a little on edge at this time of the day with the deadline for the front page looming. There's lots of bits and pieces. We'll leave you to it and see what happens. And into 
our studio. Lucy, it's the first time you've been in our new studio in Brackham House. What do you think? Well, I'm just agog at how flash it is. It's flasher than the BBC. The only thing, though, that is heartbreaking is there's hardly anyone here. Mm. Covid, eh? That's Lucy Calloway, one of the FT's most legendary columnists who famously retrained as a teacher. These days, she teaches students in their final year of secondary or high school and runs a charity called Now Teach, which helps other professionals retrain. But she still pens the occasional FT article. I'm now teaching in a school where a lot of the girls are very well-mannered. But one of them, she'd only known me for a week in my form group, said, oh, miss, you got a Wikipedia page. And immediately she went, what's your net worth? And the whole class were agog. They want numbers. They want to know how much have you got. And actually, I think that's really quite refreshing and nice. Whilst I won't be revealing Lucy's net worth, I will let you in on four of her biggest financial mistakes something she had told the FT's deputy editor a few months ago. I told Patrick that my biggest financial mistake was having four children. Um, I I think I'd like to clarify that. Um, My four children are, without being too cheesy, the best thing in my life ever, ever, ever. I wouldn't like to say that a child was a mistake, but if one ring-fences finance, yeah, having children is financially ruinous. Yeah, and and also something that people need to be educated about in school. Yeah, this is what a child costs. Mm. Although actually the birth rate is falling so quickly without such warning. Maybe we shouldn't put them off. (laughs) We should keep that to ourselves, possibly. (laughs) And if four children wasn't enough, what about a classroom full of teenagers? Nowadays, Lucy teaches economics. What's a typical day like for you as a teacher? So now I'm only teaching A-level economics. And so I come in and I think, oh my goodness, I'm doing exchange rates with year 13. So I check over my slide, have a little panic because I forgot to do the printing the previous night, go to the printer, which is invariably broken, etc., etc. I then see my form and try and talk to them about the news, about which they know terrifyingly little. And it's not just news. Turns out her students also know terrifyingly little about financial matters. Yeah, sure, the kids do learn compound interest, but they only learn it within maths. They don't understand that it's a real thing. Kids leave school without knowing that tax is going to be taken off their pay slip. They don't have a clue what average salaries are. But they're being whipped up into a sort of social media-inspired greed, some of which is great because it's sort of motivating, but it's alarming because it's just not based on anything that's real. Now, in your opinion, what are the main perils of the current approach when it comes to financial education and financial literacy? We're really piecemeal. What's that doing to, to children, to society? Well, look, it's always been bad to cast young people out into the world without knowing what money is. But you could argue that in the old days, they just find out soon enough. I think that both social networks and the promise of cryptocurrency have just changed the whole thing. This is one of Lucy's most unsettling finds, the rising popularity of cryptocurrencies in schools. Lucy recently wrote a disturbing article for the FT called Crypto in the Classroom. I've put a free link to the article in the show notes. This is something that I feel really, really shocked about. One of the interesting things about it is it's young teenage boys. This has been a trend that has divided the sexes 
Some of the girls had barely heard of Bitcoin, but this is what the boys talk about every single break time. They're boasting really, really loudly about their gains. They're passing on tips. And the thing that frightens me most about it is they believe that because so much money has been made over the last few years, that will continue. How are they able to actually trade in crypto if they're under 18? So quite a lot of them do it in their parents' names or in the names of somebody who's over 18 and they do it on their behalf. And do you think that the parents necessarily know about this? The kids who I talk to, the parents do know about it, but I'm worried about the parents too. These are families of, some of them are on free school meals. The parents do not have money that they can afford to lose, but they have been swept up by their kids' enthusiasm and by the promise of easy money. And so it's the kids are not only putting at risk their money, they're putting at risk their parents' money. And I think it's truly frightening. This is where Lucy thinks the education system should step in. The problem is, not all teachers are hugely financially literate themselves. And even for those that are, keeping up with the latest trends, such as crypto, can be a challenge. I'm now in a situation with some um, school kids are ahead of me in their knowledge on crypto, on these trading platforms, on some of the new currencies, on some of the ways that they're trading them, the things that I don't even know about. But what I do have and what they don't have is a really hardwired knowledge of risk and return. I don't think they have a clue about that. And it's a very, very hard thing to teach. But getting 17-year-old students interested in talking about budgets or weighing up the risks of different investments is a tough task. If they see the promise of free money... And they have some boring teacher saying, hang on a minute, there is a risk-return trade-off and this is what it looks like and here are some of the bubbles that burst in the past and, you know, try and talk them down a bit. When they are wired and hyped on the promise of that easy money, they kind of look at you as if you're some sort of of out-of-date, hopeless old geezer who really doesn't have a clue. So I think that schools not only need to teach those things, but really need to give deep thought, really to sort of, you know, behavioural biases to understand how to make those messages stick. I remember at a similar age being very interested in, as I said, I'd invested in the stock market when I was 15. That's Patrick Jenkins, the FT's deputy editor. He's worked on the paper for more than 20 years and has covered some of the biggest financial stories going. Plus, I can also tell you, he makes a mean Welsh cake at Christmas. But back in the 1980s, he was a risk-taking teenager himself. I distinctly remember the odd outing to Cardiff with a bunch of friends going to the bookmakers and trying to make some money on horse racing about which we knew absolutely nothing. And did you Um, lose everything? Well, I have this distinct memory of putting a £1 bet on what was called a seven-horse accumulator through definitely luck rather than judgment. The first six horses that I'd picked actually won. Blimey. So there was, in effect, something nutty like £100,000 resting on the last race. And if it had won, I would have won half a million pounds. So, yeah. You were spending the money in your head, weren't you? Kind of. Um, (laughs) But I didn't win. So I didn't win anything. But I'd only lost a pound. I could tell at that point that it was a very potentially addictive thing. And it just comes down to personalities. 
teenage Patrick managed to escape the gambling bug and instead went on to study modern languages. He got a job as a translator, then a reporter, before finally climbing up the ranks at the FT. But a lot has changed in the past few decades, and Patrick thinks that young people of today have a tougher time financially than they did back in his day. You know, a lot of what young people are doing today is looking for easy ways to make money. Yeah. All the more so today compared with the 1980s, because actually there is that huge gap between asset-rich older generations and younger generations that find it very hard to get started in the world and and see all this inequality out there and, you know, an even more materialistic world. And obviously, on top of that, a far more digitized world where access to all of this is far easier. Goodness knows where I'd have been if in the 1980s there'd been seven horse accumulators available on my phone. Uh, Maybe I wouldn't have quit after the first loss. Well, yeah, I mean, this is the thing. You just don't know what children are looking at on their phones and on their iPads and all kinds of things can get to them through that. But why does financial literacy matter so much? And why is it so important to the FT? The data is slightly old, but it applies absolutely today as much as it did when it was done, I think, back six or seven years ago. World Bank data, looking all around the world at developed and developing nations alike, found that on average, two-thirds of the world's population is financially illiterate. 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 And that's, that's a pretty generous definition of literate. The World Bank defines financial literacy as the level of awareness and knowledge of key financial concepts required for managing our personal finances. In other words, it's the ability to make sound financial decisions, something that surprisingly large proportions of society are not equipped to do. Even in the UK, one third of the population in those studies was defined as financially illiterate. Other studies have found the numbers to be worse. I mean, that is a scandal. The other thing that is a striking stat that came out of some polling that the FT and Ipsos did a couple of months ago is that nine in ten people admit that they learn little or nothing at school about finance. That poll Patrick mentioned was for England. So what's financial education like on the other side of the pond? I have a sort of a, a transatlantic view of not just finance in general, but certainly personal finance as well. Peter Spiegel. His official title is the FT's US Managing Editor. I've uh, tried to get my title changed to Captain America, but uh, that hasn't gone down so well so far. (laughs) So let's go a little bit further back in time. Why finance? Why journalism? I I always say that there's a very fine line between a news reporter and a gossip, and I just (laughs) like to be on top of what was going on. So true. Did you learn much about money in school? Yeah, from sort of the recess of my mind, I now do remember it was fifth grade, Mrs. Cabin. And this was a, a regular state school. It wasn't a private school. And it was part of the fifth grade curriculum that I had to do a unit in maths on balancing a checkbook and how banks worked and that kind of thing. So I'm, I was probably 10 years old at the time. So, you know, they started us pretty early. <laughs> well, if you were learning all of that age 10, do you think it's really true that Americans are more open when it comes to talking about money than us stuffy old Brits? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true, to be honest with you. I think the fact that the stock market itself is so public lends sort of American culture to talk more openly about money. In the U.S., 
even as a teenager, people talk about the stock market. I mean, my dad was a physician, so like most Americans, had a little bit of an investment portfolio, and he was always, in those days, sitting with the local paper, looking at the stock listings and seeing how his his individual stocks did. And I just remember him talking about that at the dinner table. It's just, a, it is much more part of American culture than it is in the UK. Even my, my peers in the UK will talk about property. It's no coincidence that the GameStop share trading frenzy started in the US. Like Lucy and Patrick, Peter is sceptical of teenagers seeing investing as a way to make a quick buck through investment apps. But for him, it's not only because they don't understand the concept of risk and return. Your average Joe, your average teenager is now getting involved in the stock market. Isn't this a great thing? They're sharing in the wealth created through the equity markets. And my reaction to that is, oh, gosh, you know what? I'll tell you a way to share the wealth. How about we pay people more in their salaries, right? And I think I worry slightly that it's, it's, it's a way to excuse some of the other inequalities in the American system. Oh, well, you're not getting paid that much? Get a, get a Robin Hood app and invest in GameStop, right? And I'm not sure the democratization of finance, the motivation behind it, which seems to be, you know, let everyone get a piece of the American dream by investing in GameStop or AMC or, or Hertz or whatever the hot stock is today. I'm not sure that's such a positive thing. And I do think it short circuits the wider debate about stagnant wages. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm a bit of a, I have a, a divided feeling about this whole phenomenon. I think it has become an extension, as I said, of what is part of American culture, which is Doc Marcus is a regular conversation piece at the dinner table for many people. So the conversations that were happening around the kitchen table when you were a teenager, fast forward a generation, you're now the parent to two lovely kids. The kind of conversations that are happening around your kitchen table, how are they different? I spent six years covering the Eurozone crisis. And so I'd come home talking about, you know, Italian bond yields. And my son, who at the time may have been seven or eight, was like, Daddy, what's that? And so I would walk him through <laughs> what a bond is and how how companies and, 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 and sovereigns raise money on the debt markets. <laughs> and how would you recommend to people who aren't financial journalists how they could involve their children, give them exposure to these kinds of grown-up conversations about money? Well, you know, my son, for instance, always thinks he's a chef. Uh, and I said, okay, look, you suddenly, your Mr. Chef is doing really well and you only have four tables and you want to move into a bigger, how you get the money to expand? Well, you either got to take in a partner or you get a loan or if you're a bigger company, you go to the bond market and raise some debt or you sell a piece of your company in the stock market. And I do think those kinds of conversations, if they're brought home to your kids' individual interests, actually are a really good way to learn about finance and also personal finance. Financial literacy clearly matters to my FT colleagues, as it should. And both Lucy Calloway and Patrick Jenkins in the London newsroom, who we heard from earlier in the show, are trustees of Flick, the FT's financial literacy and inclusion campaign, along with me. Our mission as a charity is a simple one. We want to improve financial literacy, but especially for the groups that stand to gain the most from it. Young people, women and minority groups. So what can the FT bring to the party? We think that the Financial Times brand, that kind of convening power that we can bring, will hopefully allow us to influence policymaking when it comes to educational priorities, for example, but also, crucially, to provide respected content that we can roll out to 
young people through schools and other intermediary organizations, to women, which is the second kind of target group that we have, and to generally disenfranchised communities. There's a lot of information out there. And some of it is free, some of it isn't. Some of it is very good. Some of it is complete and utter well, I'm not quite sure what we're allowed to say these days on the <laughs> FT podcast, but you get the drift. So I would like us to perform a sorting service for teachers to provide some of our own material, but also to say, you know, you want to do something on crypto risks, here you go. You want to do something on budgeting, here you go. But also, I would like to see some sort of provision on the curriculum that requires schools to do this. So why did I get involved? As someone whose job can be described as an unofficial financial agony aunt, I've seen with my own eyes how financial literacy is a life skill that can be life-changing. So much of the financial world is set up to profit from consumers' mistakes, whether it's being penalised by huge overdraft or credit card charges, missing out on pension contributions or being suckered in to risky crypto schemes. Now, as listeners of Money Clinic, you're already taking steps to educate yourselves, gain the confidence to ask questions and make the best possible financial decisions you can. But just think what we could gain collectively if everyone had a better grasp of money matters. If you'd like to find out more about the Flick philosophy or to make a donation, follow the link in today's show notes or head to ftflick.com. This is going to be a very long-term project. We're only in the first few months of the existence of the charity, but we're very ambitious in what we want to achieve because we know it's a huge, huge problem in the world that on average two-thirds of the world's population is deemed financially illiterate by the World Bank. And we think even addressing some of that issue can make a huge difference in helping to mitigate poverty and straighten circumstances and basically allow people to live up to their full opportunities. Now, before we leave the FT building for the day, I'm going to take you to my absolute favourite place, the roof. This is such a lovely space. It's a huge oasis of calm in the middle of the city. We can see all the skyscrapers. It's winter in the afternoon, so the sun is beginning to set, lighting up all of the glass and steel around us. Tate Modern to our south, Globe Theatre, but absolutely dominating the skyline is St Paul's Cathedral. So although it is freezing up here today, if we hang around for a couple of minutes longer, we will hear the St Paul's bells bong which is an amazing sound and something that I really, really missed when I was stuck working from home under lockdown. Well, that and the recording studio, of course. Bong. That's it from Money Clinic this week and also for this season. Thank you to everyone who's taken part, listened to and downloaded our episodes. And thank you for voting us the People's Choice at the Lovey Awards. There's quite a back catalogue to listen again to before we return with season three in the new year. And look out for a special bonus episode in January, all about that most taxing of topics, your annual tax return. And don't forget, we're still recruiting guests for next year's shows. If you've got a money issue that you'd like to chat to me about, then get in touch. Our email address is money at ft.com or DM me on Twitter or Instagram. I'm at Claire B. Money Clinic was produced by Persis Love and Talia Augustidis. Our executive producer is Manuela Saragosa. Our sound engineer is Breen Turner. And the original music is by Metaphor Music. 
And finally, the Money Clinic podcast is a general discussion around financial topics and does not constitute an investment recommendation or individual financial advice. For that, you'll need to find an independent financial advisor. That's the small print over and done with. See you back here soon. Goodbye. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.